Economics Out Loud. A project of the New Economic School with the support from the Russian Agricultural Bank. From the early 1980s to the present, economists have hailed monetary policy practices, but now such policies are becoming less and less effective, and in the future, they might become absolutely useless as a policy instrument. Konstantin Yegorov, professor of the New Economic School. In the near future, there will be no funds to finance the deficit, absolutely none. Of course, the central bank could stop printing money, but that would be a bad decision, resulting in inflation. Олег Фьюгин, профессор of the Higher School of Economics. The government's response to the coronavirus is often compared to their response to the global financial crisis. They say the governments have learned a lesson. They reacted swiftly and were very generous. Central banks have also played their role. However, in any case, giving out money is easier than taking it back. How and when to end support for the economy, so as not to hinder the recovery, not to overheat the markets and keep inflation low. For both the central banks and the governments, the issue is becoming more and more important. What are the options for paying for debts accumulated during coronavirus? What are the risks for economies? And how does all this remind me of a joke about a drunk sailor and a bartender? All this is covered in the new podcast of Economics Out Loud. It is a podcast of the New Economic School, My name is Filip Stierkin. My guests are the professor of the New Economic School, Konstantin Yegorov, and the professor of the Higher School of Economics, Alek Vyugin, who is also a former first deputy chairman of the Central Bank and who was in charge of monetary policy. Good afternoon, Konstantin. What's going on in the monetary and fiscal policy reminds me a bit of an old joke. A sailor runs into a bar and shouts, pour me one before it starts. The bartender pours him a drink, throws it back and shouts again, hurry up, pour me another one before it starts. And so it goes the second time and the third and the fourth until someone asks, hey sailor, do you have any money? And he says, well, that's it, it's starting. So when might it start? The total long-term government debt is almost equal to the global GDP. Sooner or later, they have to pay the bill. Economists are warning, yes, on one hand, support should not be curtailed too quickly. On the other hand, it should not create serious problems in the future. They claim that this kind of fiscal policy is aimed at supporting the economy, although initially it had quite different priorities. Recent fiscal measures are not exactly about supporting the economy. It's true that the government spent a lot of money in the last year, but in the beginning there was an urgent need to solve the health crisis. The costs of masks, ventilators, vaccines and so on were very high. It was not about supporting the economy, it was about saving lives. Secondly, government spending was aimed at supporting the people most affected by lockdowns. It is similar to helping the victims of earthquakes, uh, floods, and again it's not supporting the economy. This is a redistribution of funds from those who are in a good situation to those who suffered most. And not only in the third place, they took some measures to support small businesses so that they do not close during lockdowns and continue to function. Only this part was aimed at supporting the economy. Still, the latest Biden stimulus package is about $2 trillion. At the same time, most economists estimate that during the coronavirus 
coronavirus crisis, US GDP fell by only $900 billion. So the stimulus package is much bigger than the economic losses. It's not so much about support, it's more about spending money. And sometime in the future, somebody has to pay for it. In my opinion, such a huge stimulus package could harm the economy in two ways. First, there are many ways to spend money with greater benefits. It's possible to invest in the economy in order to get future returns. Instead, they are sending checks to Americans, and nobody knows what people will do with that money. Perhaps they would simply spend it at a bar, and it would be quite hard to get the money back. This doesn't promise any benefits in the future. The government risks both high inflation and losing all the benefits it acquired during its long 30-year war against inflation. They risk debt crises and the loss of status of global financial power. It's quite possible that that place could be taken by China. What are the ways to finance the public debt and those emergency expenses that should be made, and possibly for quite a long time? I'll return again to your joke, which I really like. Actually, there are three ways to do that. The first is that the customer will take the money out of his pocket and give it to the bartender. In the case of governments, we're talking about tax increases. Future American taxpayers will pay back all these debts. This is the easiest way. The second way, though it's not so simple, is that the customer will get the drinks, go out onto the street and resell them at a higher price. In this way, he would completely pay off his debt and also make a profit for himself. This is the way that borrowing is done by businesses. If now Americans would invest in highways, education, science and things like that, in the future it would help to increase GDP and tax revenues. And finally, the third way to pay off these debts is the most surprising. Imagine that the bartender had so much booze that he had simply nowhere to store it and he would be willing to give his client a large discount just to get rid of some of his excess supply. International investors are very eager to invest in the American economy. Surprisingly, they are willing to pay the US extra for the US to borrow from them. And it really works that way for the United States. However, these numbers are small, just a few percentage points of the total debt. Indeed, international investors are willing to invest in the United States, even at very low interest rates. This is the most reliable way for them to invest. So there are three main options for repaying the debt. And of course, there is a scenario where the debt is left unpaid, inflation and defaults. The economy entered the coronavirus crisis already with a very high public debt, and rates were also low. At the same time, the markets were overloaded with cash. As many economists think, such a combination strengthened the impact of the crisis. It significantly reduced the room to maneuver, and governments found themselves in a more dangerous debt crisis. Yes, indeed. Let's start with rates. There is a global long-term trend of falling interest rates. It started somewhere in the mid-80s, long before the global financial crisis and before the coronavirus crisis. Sometimes interest rates went up, but on a long period, they kept going down and down. And now, in many developed countries, the rates are close to zero. Soon central banks will run out of options to respond to crises. When rates are very low, monetary policy won't help the economy at all, unless central banks aggressively start introducing negative interest rates. Sure, coronavirus played its role, but it wasn't that big. The US national debt was enormously high even before that. Many economists think that it was very irresponsible on the part of the United States to build up such a large debt during the period when the economy was good. Raising the debt was justified during the global financial crisis of 2008-2009.
Obviously, it was inevitable during the coronavirus. But in between, the US government collected very little taxes and spent a lot. As a result, it would be difficult to borrow in the case of a serious crisis in the future. For that reason, some economists criticized Biden's stimulus package. It implies heavy borrowing. There was a big crisis 13 years ago, we just went through another crisis, maybe in 10 years there'll be another big crisis again, and no one knows whether it would be possible to borrow again to fight it or not. In theory, pumping the economy with money should lead to inflation. Why isn't it happening? Oleg Fugin gives his answer to this riddle. The use of monetary instruments during the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, and again during the pandemic, has shown that low interest rates and quantitative easing do not lead to an immediate rise in inflation. The interaction between the financial policy of state regulators and economic growth has changed. I have a hypothesis about that. First, the development of new technologies and an increase in labor productivity is one of the reasons why inflation is not growing fast. Another reason is income distribution. We see serious growth in the liabilities of central banks and an increase in budget deficits. And obviously, there are emissions to cover the debt. But most of the funds are channeled into assets and not into consumption and services. And we have been witnessing this phenomenon for several years. As the US statistics demonstrate, the incomes of the middle class, the majority of the American population, practically do not grow or grow at very low rates. Basically, almost all the money supply goes into the value of assets circulating in the financial markets. It adds to the wealth of a very narrow circle of people who are unable to consume much. They cannot use all their money exclusively for consumption. They can only use it for investment. But investments are financial instruments, and instruments are also productive assets. Debt-overburdened households do not contribute to the growth of inflation. Statistics show that most of the latest this stimulus package, the parachute money that has now been distributed all over, went to pay off the accumulated debts and obligations. And this does not lead to an increase in demand. In fact, global competition is now at a very high level, and therefore there is no possibility of price increases either. Nobody knows for how long it will go on. Moreover, the governments of developed countries are thinking about how to change fiscal policy in order to direct funds not only to financial markets, but also to consumption. Constantine, you're talking about the United States, but this is also relevant not only for the United States and developed economies. It is also a problem for emerging economies as well. Many developing countries are already using unconventional monetary policy. Yeah, that's true, but everything is a little different there. In Russia, the interest rate is 4.5%, and this is good. We still have room to maneuver. But in the future, we're likely to face a situation similar to the United States. On the one hand, the Bank of Russia might further reduce inflation, and then interest rates will fall. We will also have no room for maneuver either. On the other hand, maybe the long-term trend will catch up with us and interest rates will fall, even despite inflation of 4%. Then we will have to come up with something of our own. Also, some unconventional measures and more borrowing on international markets. But of course it will be harder for us than for other countries, because there is less confidence in Russia on international markets, so we would borrow at much higher rates. In this sense it's good because Russia still has some gold and hard currency reserves. We need to accumulate them both in good times because it would be much more hard, difficult for us to borrow in bad times. It was the policy of the Ministry of Finance and of the Central Bank to accumulate the 
financial reserves. Konstantin, do you think that in the future Russia might also need some tools of unconventional monetary policy? It seems to me that this is the most likely scenario. Again, if everything goes well in Russia, the central bank might reduce its rate below 4%. This is a good scenario because low inflation is good. Also, there is a world trend that interest rates are falling on the global financial markets. If we don't close the country off from the rest of the world, then interest rates in our country might also fall. We won't be able to follow the American policy, where the Fed buys long-term government bonds and even private sector bonds. We can't really do one or the other. Our public debt market is small, and it is not so important for our economy. And the market of private bonds is also small. Therefore, we have to come up with something of our own. For example, giving long-term loans directly to banks so that they can then somehow transfer the money to private companies. It seems to me that this is our future. How likely is a wave of defaults in emerging economies? I won't be surprised much if it happens, but this is not unexpected since emerging economies are getting loans at high interest rates precisely because the lenders are keeping in mind the risk of defaults. Due to the coronavirus crisis, it became even more likely. Therefore, both the World Bank and the IMF are alarmed and are offering their assistance, just to prevent the defaults. However, even developed countries now have such large debts that they can also default on their debts. Their borrowing interest rates implied that the investors considered them to be safe. And this is a serious global problem. It might be serious to the debt problem between the two world wars, when there was a debt crisis in Europe. Germany owed a lot of reparations to France, France owed to England, England owed to the United States. Debts were very high and because of that economies stagnated. They tried to somehow restructure the debts and postpone payments, but anyway, it didn't end well. So in the future, we might be facing a risk of a global debt crisis. It should be necessary to undertake some steps and hold impactful negotiations in order to save the world economy. Any unconventional policy measures might be very risky in a country that lacks developed social institutions, where the central bank is not independent and ready to give in to political pressure. Our central bank manages to maintain its independence. It seems that it would be a very big risk for a country if the central bank actively uses monetary policy instruments to stimulate the economy. Yes, indeed, there are a lot of risks. First, currently, our central bank is independent, but nobody knows for how long it will remain independent. It could lose its independence very quickly. Even in the US, everyone is really worried that the Federal Reserve System might lose its independence. The national debt is so large that there may be no choice but to finance it with dollar emissions. Another issue is how exactly the central bank can help the economy. When the Fed began to buy bonds from the private companies, it was very controversial. Usually when the Fed buys government bonds, it implicitly helps the government. And it's okay, because it seems to be helping all citizens equally. But when the Fed buys bonds, for example, of General Motors, it's difficult to explain why the taxpayer should help one particular company. And it's easy to imagine a similar problem in Russia. The central bank's assistance to some specific corporations might raise many questions. Perhaps it helps the friends of some people in power, and it's a case of corruption, which is a big problem in Russia. It is well known that in the summer of 2020, there were suggestions to turn on the printing press and to carry out some targeted emissions. Such ideas still circulate among the people in power. Russia is holding up well so far. Such a threat is very real for many countries, but Russia is still at the safe end of this spectrum. Our government doesn't have a lot of expenses. We have a lot of reserves and a lot of room for maneuver. 
Нестандартная денежно-кредитная политика Unconventional monetary policy won't be required for Russia, and we won't need to raise taxes. Олег Фьюгин thinks so. But the policy of increasing the national debt is a road to nowhere. It's a trap. I don't think it's an issue. The Russian economy is holding up well. To some extent, the country is in a state of financial autarky. The Russian economy is extremely sensitive to methods of monetary financing. In 2020, it was enough just to increase the financing of the deficit. The central bank introduced repo operations on a long-term basis for the state bank, and it was enough. They also spent a part of the stabilization fund. Though there were serious capital outflows, the central bank used the money from the sale of foreign currency. It sold foreign currency and got an inflow of rubles. Of course, it instantly increased inflation, but not so much. So the Russian economy is extremely sensitive to any method of monetary deficit financing. And this is not typical for developed countries. Again, there is also a tax issue. In this situation, tax increases usually are not required. First, the Russian government has large, hard currency reserves, and for the purpose of economic growth, it is better not to raise taxes. It's better to use the reserves. It could lead to the strengthening of the ruble, but it might even be good for the economy. The government gets its revenues from the export of oil and taxation of the oil sector, and it uses that money to finance the budget deficit. Another way to reduce the budget deficit is to issue government bonds, which are bought by state-owned banks. This is really the road to nowhere. Financing the deficit with oil revenues is much better. Of course, it leads to excessive dependence on the price of oil, however huge reserves have been accumulated, and even in the case of a sharp drop in the price of oil, there are still enough reserves to survive. Strange, but the government is trying to act differently. It continues to accumulate oil revenues, but plans to invest funds from the National Welfare Fund into government projects. They plan to invest the money in government projects instead of spending it to reduce the deficit. It would be logical to reduce the deficit first, especially because the effectiveness of state projects is in question. And in the near future, there will be no funds to finance the deficit, absolutely none. Of course, the central bank could start printing money, but that would be a bad decision resulting in inflation. Constantine, what do you think about modern monetary theory? To what extent, in your opinion, is it applicable for developed countries and developing economies? Its supporters believe that they have found a certain algorithm, a mechanism that solves all of the economic problems. The central bank is responsible for economic growth. The government is responsible for inflation. The central bank finances the government debt with a mission, and the government withdraws excess liquidity through taxes and by issuing bonds. Mainstream economists like to joke that so-called modern monetary theory is neither modern nor monetary, nor is it really a theory. And it's pretty clear that it's wrong, even though it's hard to figure out exactly why it's wrong. Its algorithm is not actually as simple as it might seem at first glance. Proponents of this theory suggest that let's finance all government spending by printing new money. Then, in the case of rising inflation, we will withdraw the extra money from the economy by raising taxes. And the only question is how much new money we can print. There is a consensus that if we print too much money, inflation will rise dramatically. Though, the supporters of the theory say that inflation won't grow as much. Also, they propose using such a system to finance very large government spending. For example, in the US, they advocate free medicine for everyone. And it could be much more expensive there than in Russia. Employing green technologies, uh, providing guaranteed employment for every citizen, etc. And they assume that anything can be financed that way. Obviously, in order to stop inflation, 
it will be necessary to collect a lot of taxes. And it was not always possible in history. Many countries in the past actually tried to do that, to finance government spending by printing new money. Like in Russia in the early 1990s, or recently in Venezuela, and there are more cases. And as we all know, the result was hyperinflation. Well, the business also doesn't like the situation of uncertainty. If taxes become a tool for responding to inflation and accordingly can change quite sharply and quickly, then the business cannot plan the development and investments. Exactly so. As we all know, there is a scenario where a country switches to some other currency, for example dollars, and then business continues to function more or less normally. Well, that's quite a bad scenario. It was the case for Venezuela or for Germany in the 1920s. It is possible to switch to another currency, but people just walk around with suitcases full of cash. In the morning they have a suitcase of cash, and then they run around and try to change it into another currency as soon as possible. And by the time they get to the store, the suitcase becomes half the size. Exactly. People are busy doing something with this paper all day, and they have no time to work. And what is the reason why modern monetary theory is gaining so much popularity? Isn't it kind of response to the public's demand for justice? An answer to the question of how to find a recipe for eternal economic happiness? Well, sounds like a very simple way. The printing press is always at hand and lets the state solve all the problems. It seems to me that there are two main reasons for the popularity of modern monetary theory. One is politics and psychology, about which I don't know much, but this is exactly how you described it. In fact, if you take this theory to the limit, then in fact you don't have to work at all. Why would a bartender work if he can just drink from an infinite bottle? The second reason is that it is more profitable to borrow when interest rates are low, and recently they've dropped dramatically, so that investors are even paying extra to governments to borrow. Therefore, mainstream economists think that it is very profitable to expand government spending, invest in roads, in all the other things that might be profitable in the long run. And thus, an idea of a rapid expansion of government spending just coincides with the main message of this theory. It seems to me that another weak point of modern monetary theory is the hypothesis of the rationality of politicians and officials. Everybody believes that government spending is efficient, money is spent wisely, debt does not skyrocket, inflation will not rise, and taxes will not undermine business development. It's the so-called hypothesis of the rationality of bureaucracy. This seems to me to be one of the weakest points. It is true that it's better to have a foolproof system, but this is a policy that does not depend on the good behavior of many people. But it is possible to criticize modern monetary theory in other ways as well. Even in a scenario where politicians behave perfectly, it will not work. Let's go to futurology. Every crisis changes something in economic policy. The Great Depression gave birth to a new economic mainstream, Keynesian economics. The crisis of 2008-2009 raised a wave of unconventional monetary policy. What could bring up such an unusual crisis that unfolded in 2020 and continues now? What can be changed in taxation, budgetary and monetary policy? Many important things. First, the coronavirus has finally changed the balance between monetary and fiscal policies. The long downward trend in rates, which has made monetary policy less effective. Due to the coronavirus crisis, interest rates have dropped very low, and they cannot be used effectively in the future. The conduct of monetary policy from the early 1980s to the present has been celebrated by many economists. Such a policy helped to reduce inflation and smooth recessions in developed countries. 
also in large degree thanks to monetary policy. Not only the US economy, but the entire world economy was saved from the financial crisis. But now monetary policy is becoming less and less effective. And in the future, it might become absolutely useless as a policy instrument. There is only one good scenario. We will completely switch to electronic money and give up cash. Then it would be possible to introduce very high negative interest rates such as minus 20, minus 10%. In this case, the monetary policy might come back despite very low interest rates. But as long as there is at least some cash left, monetary policy will be less effective. This means that fiscal policy will play a very important role. We have to rely less on technocrats at central banks and to rely more on politicians in government. Another big trend is the growth of the public sector. We demand governments be more prepared for medical crises and other crises. Now rates are so low because it is profitable for the government to spend a lot, and we urge them to spend more. That means at some point they will collect more taxes. Therefore, the role of the state in the economy will grow even more. Another problem is the problem of debt crises. This is also complicated because it is beneficial for governments to borrow a lot. There is a good scenario, when they'll be able to pay back everything, or at least to stay for a long time with very large debts. But in fact, high debt markets are prone to panics. You can have very large debt and low interest rates, and suddenly investors start to panic and want to quickly withdraw their money. In such cases, governments will go bankrupt simply because everyone suddenly panicked at the same time. This threat is also very serious. Many governments have very large debts, and it would be necessary to act somehow to avoid such a threat. Also, apparently, the coronavirus crisis has accelerated the long-term trend of transitioning dominance on financial markets from the United States to China. Many have already said that China coped with the coronavirus crisis much better than other countries. Now the United States borrows a lot, risks high inflation and debt crisis. And for global investors, this is another reason to pay more attention to China instead of to the United States. And what about social policy? Many economists have compared the reaction of the U.S. social system to the reaction of the social systems in Europe, that it protects the population more actively and to more extent. First of all, it's a question of politics and what is demanded by voters. It is true there was a lot of redistribution during the crisis. Small restaurants and other small businesses were directly affected by the coronavirus crisis, and they were helped by governments on behalf of taxpayers. On the other hand, in some countries the social support systems were better established, in some worse. In America they were poorly established, and the government simply could not just quickly help precisely those who needed the help the most. But they decided to help anyway, and so they sent out checks just to everyone. Most people didn't really need them, but still those who really needed them did receive the checks. However, there is another dimension of redistribution between current and future generations. The government borrowed now, it sent checks out to everyone, and and they spent it. Taxes will have to be collected sometime in the future. Maybe not even in 20 years, most likely in 50. This means that it is not a problem for those who live now, it is a problem for those who will live in 50 years. So this is redistribution from future generations to the current one. Many people think this is good, because our descendants will live better than us, they will have better technology and they will be richer. And therefore this is redistribution from the rich to the poor. Isn't it necessary to treat systemic problems of the economy and society if we want to live better? 
to do something with inequality and environmental problems. Yes, and that's why the current situation is somewhat tragic. There are many fundamental problems that should be solved, and it's the task of the governments to do so. Healthcare, education, science, uh, maybe introducing the green economy. If we don't do anything about the environment, then in 100 or 200 years, we will find ourselves in a very bad situation. Currently, long-term interest rates have dropped so much that it has become very convenient to invest in solving these problems right now. And in fact, many economists have been waiting for an opportunity like this. But instead, the government decided to use this opportunity to send out checks to all Americans instead of solving these fundamental issues. Well, let's hope the world economy can pay for the booze and there will be enough resources to pay for the accumulated problems. Biden's plan is an example of such an attempt. In any case, some of the questions that we discussed with Konstantin Yegorov and Oleg Vyugin will be answered fairly soon. It was the podcast Economics Out Loud. Listen to us at podcast hosting platforms and read us on social networks and on the website of the New Economics School. Сделано в CM Records. CM Records.ru. Любая озвучка.